the peak of the Massachusetts heat advisory is this afternoon as the extreme weather results in schools closing, cooling centers opening, and warnings to residents and their pets to stay hydrated. It's Thursday, September 7th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, climate groups say the world needs to rapidly reduce oil production to hit climate goals. One oil company says why phase out oil when it can pull carbon out of the sky and put it in the ground? A higher level of oil and gas operation could continue offset by an equally higher level of carbon dioxide removal. But is it a smart way to fight climate change? And Mexico is on course to make history by electing its first female head of state in next year's elections. It's 401. The forecast and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden leaves soon for Southeast Asia, where he and other world leaders will gather for the highly anticipated G20 summit. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports on Biden's visit to India and later to Vietnam. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the administration is hoping the summit will show that the world's major economies can work together, even in challenging times. As the president heads to the G20, he's committed to working with emerging market partners to deliver big things together. That's what we believe the world will see in New Delhi this weekend. The United States' commitment to the G20 hasn't wavered. Sullivan says climate change, the war in Ukraine, and countering increasing threats from China will be top of mind for the president. From New Delhi, Biden will travel to Hanoi, where he'll focus on increasing economic cooperation. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris is returning home from the ASEAN summit. And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spent the day meeting with Ukrainian officials and visiting communities near Kyiv. He visited a school as Ukrainian children are heading back to class for fall. Here's NPR's Brian Mann. After touring the school, Secretary Blinken spoke about the resilience of the Ukrainian people and their efforts to keep the economy and cultural life going despite months of Russian attacks. Blinken reacted to the latest large-scale strike on a marketplace in eastern Ukraine. Just yesterday, we saw the bombing of a market. 17 people or more killed, many others injured. A market. For what? At least one child died in that attack near Donetsk. Over the last 24 hours, Russia also bombed civilian areas in the city of Kherson, where another person died. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has begun a new round of diplomacy, asking other nations for aid, strengthening his country's air defenses. Brian Mann, NPR News, Kyiv. Turkish authorities have released a video message from an American cave researcher who is trapped thousands of feet below the surface in a cave and in need of medical attention. Mark Dickey is suffering from gastrointestinal bleeding. I look forward to working with everyone to safely get myself out with their assistance. Um, As you can see, I'm up, I'm alert, I'm talking, uh, but I'm not healed on the inside yet, so I need a, a lot of help to get out of here. According to the video message recorded yesterday, Dickey says the fast delivery of medical supplies saved his life. Dickey also credits the caving community for rushing to his aid. As many as 170 rescuers from across Europe are working to save the American's life. Hurricane Lee's rapidly intensifying over the warm waters of the Atlantic. The National Hurricane Center says the storms reach a Category 2 status. Top sustained winds of 105 miles per hour. It's expected to become a Cat 5. 
within the next 36 hours. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The National Weather Service heat advisory is in effect until 8 tonight. The heat forced the closure of schools in Lowell today. Interim School Superintendent Liam Skinner made the decision after students and teachers yesterday reported feeling lightheaded and ill. We don't have air conditioning. We've had classrooms in recent days where the temperature was in the 90s. Uh, the heat index in one case was up to uh, right boarding on 100. Lowell schools will be closed for a second day tomorrow. School systems release their students early in communities such as Worcester, Reading, Framingham, and Melrose. Boston Public Schools stuck to their normal opening day schedule. Two new reports blame the MBTA's track department for a series of problems that have plagued the transit system. The reports found track workers missed numerous problems because they didn't have enough experience or training to do their job properly. At a news conference today, MBTA General Manager Philip Eng talked about what it'll take to fix the problem. Expanding maintenance staffing and implementing more rigorous training standards. Upgrading antiquated processes and documentation practices to meet modern industry practices and standards. Improving quality control and oversight of critical safety procedures. The MBTA implemented more than 100 speed restrictions system-wide earlier this year. As of today, restrictions remain in place on more than a quarter of the T's tracks. A Massachusetts state trooper who was critically injured last month in a crash in Utah is returning to the Bay State today. Matthew McRae was hurt when the ride share he was in was struck by another driver. Police arrested the other driver while operating under the influence. A GoFundMe page for McRae shows donors have raised more than twice the goal for the troopers' transport flights and medical needs. In the forecast, 93 degrees right now in the Boston area. Bright and a little bit breezy, thankfully, this afternoon. Tonight, partly cloudy, down around 72. Tomorrow and Saturday, partly sunny. May stick to the upper 80s. Then Sunday, clouds move in with highs down about 82 degrees. 93 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. The Portacalis family is headed to Greece from director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast only in theaters September 8th. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Mexico is marking a moment in history. Unless there is a seismic upset in the ensuing months, the country appears all but certain to be on course to elect its first female head of state in next year's elections. This comes after late yesterday, the governing Morena party selected the former mayor of Mexico, Claudia Sheinbaum, to be its candidate. She will face businesswoman and Senator Xochitl Galvez, who was selected last week as the main opposition coalition's candidate. NPR's Ada Peralta is in Mexico City. Hi there. Hey, Ari. How significant is this moment in Mexican politics? Was it a surprise? It is big, and it was a surprise because um, it's likely to mark the shattering of a glass ceiling in what is a notoriously patriarchal society. But it's also not surprising because it's taken hard and long work on the part of women in Mexico. Uh, We can go back to 1953 when women gained the right to vote, but I think we should go back to the late 90s uh, when Mexico started imagining what a multi-party democracy would look like. And women back there, feminists back there, uh, pushed the view that democracy could only exist if an equal participation of women was guaranteed. And 
they made sure that those were not just words. Uh, slowly, Mexico instituted quotas in government positions, and in 2019, Mexico passed a constitutional amendment guaranteeing parity in every aspect of government. So today, Mexico's Congress is 50% women, the president's cabinet is balanced, the Supreme Court president is a woman, so is the central bank's governor, and not that this is a competition, uh, but we should note that when it comes to gender equality, Mexico is far ahead of the United States. The Interparliamentary Union, which keeps tabs on women lawmakers, ranks Mexico fourth in the world when it comes to parity. It ranks the United States 71st. Only about 28% of American lawmakers are women. Hmm. So tell us about these two women, one of whom is likely to be Mexico's next leader. So who they are is actually the surprising bit. Uh, both of these women are unlikely protagonists in Mexican politics. Uh, Shanebaum is an environmental engineer, and Galvez is a computer uh, engineer. Both of them were brought out of civilian life uh, by presidents. Galvez was appointed to deal uh, with indigenous issues by former President Vicente Fox, and Shanebaum dealt with environmental issues when current President Andrés Manuel López Obrador was the mayor of Mexico City. Galvez also identifies as an indigenous, and she speaks the Nyanyu language, and Shanebaum is Jewish. She was the first Jewish and woman mayor of Mexico City, and barring, as you mentioned, some miraculous third-party win, either Claudia Shanebaum or Xochitl Galvez will be elected Mexico's first woman president next summer. And how are people in Mexico reacting to that fact? I think people on the streets appreciate the history. Let me play you a little bit of tape from Maria Luis Hernandez, who is a 65-year-old secretary. Creo que esta es una gran oportunidad para todo México porque este ya llegó el tiempo de las mujeres. Aunque sé que somos un, un país de machistas y corrupto, esta mujer va a triunfar mucho. And she's saying this is a great opportunity for Mexico because the time for women has arrived. I know she says that we're a machista and corrupt country, but this woman will triumph. And I think that sentiment is widespread here. Mexicans are yearning for a different country. They want justice. They want transparency. They want equality. And people here feel like men haven't been able to deliver. So maybe women will. It also tells you that whoever takes power, the expectations are going to be out of this world. Finally, Ada, let me ask you about a different story that relates mm -hmm. to gender rights in Mexico. The Supreme Court ruled to decriminalize abortion across the country. What did the judgment say? Well, the Supreme Court uh, threw out all federal criminal penalties for abortions, and that means that federal health facilities and federal health insurance will have to provide abortions. Abortion rights groups are calling the decision historic. Uh, it will open up access to abortions to millions of Mexicans, but this is not full legalization. Some 20 Mexican states still criminalize abortion, and those laws still stand, but it's clear uh, that abortion rights advocates will, try to st will, will, will start trying to change those state laws. NPR's Ada Peralta in, on history being made in Mexico City. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ari. The NFL's new season kicks off tonight, but football fans who are Charter Spectrum Cable TV subscribers won't be able to get their football fix on ESPN. That is thanks to a dispute with Disney that saw more than two dozen Disney-owned channels yanked from the service, including the one that calls itself the worldwide leader in sports. Here to explain how this carriage dispute could actually threaten the future of cable TV is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hey there. Hi. So, Eric, can you start by explaining this disagreement between Disney and Charter Spectrum? And I mean, how did we get to the point where nearly 15 million subscribers lost access to Disney's channels? 
Well, uh, I'll try. <laughs> uh, basically, cable systems pay media companies like Disney to carry their channels. And in negotiating a new deal, Disney asked for higher fees, even though cord cutting means there's fewer subscribers. Now, Charter agreed, but they insisted that their subscribers get something else, free access to streaming versions of Disney channels. And that has been proven to be a deal breaker. Uh, Disney's channels left Charter Spectrum Systems just as the football season was about to start and the U.S. Open was underway. And that surprised a lot of sports fans who suddenly couldn't see events. In fact, there's a woman in Tampa, Florida, who's leading a proposed class action lawsuit against Charter claiming breach of contract. Now, Charter's CEO, Chris Winfrey, uh, spoke at a conference today. He implied the company would be willing to restructure its offerings without costly sports programming like ESPN if this deal doesn't work out. Huh, okay. I mean, but still, disputes between media companies that bring brief blackouts, that's not unheard of. So why is this one such a big deal? Why might it actually threaten the future of the cable TV industry? Well, I think this is another example of how streaming services are disrupting and disintegrating TV earnings. In cable TV, popular channels like ESPN entice customers to sign up for systems that include a lot of other channels they might not watch. But as companies like Disney shift more of their top shelf programs to streaming, there's less incentive to buy that cable bundle. Now, Disney exec executives have talked about offering more ESPN content through streaming. Executives at another company, Warner Brothers Discovery, have talked about offering more news from CNN and live sports coverage on its max streaming service, and that would put on streaming two of the biggest selling points for cable TV, live sports and live, new, live news reporting. And this is about precedent. I mean, whatever agreement these companies come up with, it's likely going to be duplicated elsewhere. Right. Okay. Let's talk numbers. Can companies like Disney actually make more money by putting their channels on streaming? Well, that's the toughest question. I mean, right now on cable systems, Disney gets something like $9 per subscriber, according to the Los Angeles Times, whether or not those subscribers actually watch ESPN. Now, on streaming, Disney only gets paid for the people who sign up for the app, and they probably can't charge those subscribers enough to fully make up for the lost cable revenue. Consumers are cutting the cord. They're dropping cable subscriptions for streaming anyway. So companies like Disney are forced into beefing up these streaming platforms where they might make less money, which degrades the cable systems where they used to make a lot of money. It is so it's such a mess. All right. Last question. And it's a big one, Eric. How is this all going to end? Do you think these two sides are going to be able to cut a deal? Well, Charter CEO Winfrey says he wants this resolved one way or another quickly, but I have not seen this level of acrimony in a long time. I mean, Disney released a statement saying, quote, Charter, Charter decided to abandon their consumers mm. today and suggested people buy who, their Hulu plus live TV streaming package. Yeah. Spectrum is funneling people to Fubo TV where they can get a 25 to 30 percent discount. This could spark a trend that could reach across the entire industry. Right. And both companies seem willing to walk away from a business model, which made them both lots of money. It's a mess. We'll see what happens. NPR TV critic Eric Daggins, thanks. Thank you. Four coastal states are taking steps to ensure potential home buyers understand flood risks when they decide where to live. That's because flooding is the most widespread disaster in the U.S. Virtually every county in the country has had a flood at some point in the last three decades. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports on the new regulations. North Carolina, South Carolina, New York, and New Jersey are joining the ranks of states with strong flood disclosure requirements. 
That means when you're thinking about buying a house, you'll get information about whether the house has flooded in the past and whether it's likely to flood in the future. Joel Scada is a senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council. He says the new rules mirror those in other flood-prone states. States like Texas and Louisiana have very strong disclosure laws when it comes to flood risk. Here's how it works. After you make an offer to buy a house, the seller fills out a disclosure form. You receive a piece of paper that would tell you, you know, how old the roof is, um, the type of plumbing and like sewer system hookups, and it would also have information there about flooding. Information like whether the seller is aware of any past flood damage to the home, whether the home is in an official flood zone, and whether the home is required to carry flood insurance. That way, potential buyers can walk away if they want to. The goal is to help home buyers avoid living in harm's way and avoid expensive damage down the line. Buying a home is often a family's biggest financial commitment. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a home. And so it's really important that we know whether or not it's flood prone because flooding is extremely costly. Even a small amount of water can do tens of thousands of dollars of damage because the water soaks into furniture, flooring, and drywall. If it's not fixed quickly, dangerous mold can grow. And flood insurance to help cover repairs is increasingly expensive. Climate change is partly to blame. Rising seas, more intense hurricanes, and heavier rainstorms are all driving more flood risk across the U.S. And as flooding gets worse, other states are also moving to strengthen their laws. Florida and Vermont are currently considering new flood disclosure rules. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us this uh, Thursday here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, how a former spy master is steering Turkey's pivotal role in the world as it sits midway between east and west. Ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow picked up nearly two-tenths of a percent. S&P was on the downside. It lost about three-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq lost even more ground, nearly a full percent. The first round of checks was distributed today from the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund. The fund was created by the United Way to help farmers affected by flooding this summer. Governor Maura Healy made the announcement at the Hollis Hills Farm in Fitchburg. Today, uh, we are able to announce that the fund has raised, to date, over $3 million. Over $3 million. We are... Uh, six, over 650 different contributors, uh, ranging in donation sizes from $5 to a million dollars. Healy says the first round of $2 million in relief checks is going to 214 farms in central and in western Massachusetts. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bill Blumenreich, presenting comedian Hassan Minaj on the Off With His Head tour. Two live shows at the Wang Theater, Friday, December 8th. Tickets at boxcenter.org. And Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at solargardensma.com. 
Temperatures so far today have reached a high of 93 degrees in the Boston area. Tonight we should be back down around 72 with partly cloudy skies. Friday should bring sunshine and clouds both a little bit more comfortable than today in the upper 80s. Then for Saturday, partly sunny, breezy again in the upper 80s. Sunday, gray skies for a change should only make it to about 82. This is WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. A quarter of American newspapers have gone out of business since 2005. To stem that tide, a coalition of major philanthropies is stepping forward today with a new initiative. They are pledging at least a half billion dollars over the next five years to shore up local journalism. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick is covering the story, joins us now. Hi, David. Hey, Juana. So, David, tell us who's behind this initiative. So it's a kind of murderer's row of uh, major funders, MacArthur, the Knight Foundation, Carnegie, and many others, many of which are, especially MacArthur, major financial supporters of NPR, I should say. As for the why of what's going on, let's hear what John Palfrey has to say. He's the president of the MacArthur Foundation. There is a crisis in local news. And the fact that so many newspapers are going out of business, that there are so many news deserts across America that it poses such a threat to our democracy that we had to do something at scale to be helpful. These groups are are lifting up how much they're giving. It's not as though that money to NPR, PBS and other outfits from MacArthur is going away. But what happens in places where journalism fails, where there are what they call these news deserts, is that, you know, studies indicate that uh, corruption in corporate life goes up, corruption in politics goes up and voter engagement goes down even as misinformation fills the vacuum. And they have a fear about what happens to democracy and society beyond really what happens to the news industry itself. Okay. at this point, do we have a sense of what types of news operations are going to be getting this funding? Well, so they say that they're going to look to sustain, you know, impressive current uh, news outlets as well as uh, new ventures. I think that there's going to really be an emphasis on not for profit. If you look at what happened, you know, they haven't awarded any grants yet. But if you look at what happened, for example, uh, in Chicago, the MacArthur Foundation helped uh, Chicago public media take over the Chicago Sun-Times, you know, a proud but but declining newspaper there to keep it in business and in print. They're not going to go to try to fund these huge, uh, you know, newspapers owned by these enormous local newspaper conglomerates that are often owned by these uh, hedge funds or investment funds such as Gannett. Uh, uh, you know, a, a huge number of newspapers are owned by Alden Global Capital. He, John Palfrey and others involved in this venture see that as part of the problem, not places they want to prop up. So I think they're they're looking to look for new models, not simply say, well, this is a newspaper and therefore we have to support it. What are those places that are clearly dedicating themselves to uh, informing the public uh, in a way that helps uh, the benefit society? Right. I mean, David, you and I have been in this business long enough to know that this is not the first time we've heard about a big financial effort that is promising to save local newsrooms and to reinvigorate that part of our industry. How have we seen that play out in the past? 
Well, sure. The Knight Foundation itself on its own previously did uh, 300 million. You've seen nine figure ventures from Google and Meta, which we think of as Facebook. In the latter two cases, those digital giants have been blasted for essentially siphoning off most of the online advertising from uh, news, the news industry. And a lot of that was seen as response to that criticism. That said, they've sponsored a lot of interesting ventures, some of which sustain to this day, but a lot of which uh, have ebbed. And so the question is, what comes next? That's the question indeed. So how is this latest effort from MacArthur and the others going to be different? They see this as seed money, but you're hearing the major officials involved say from these philanthropies say they think this problem is so vast, this can't be enough. They want it to grow to a billion dollars. They want to get some of that money from social media platforms. And also they think there has to be a shift in public policy and in the public itself, that it needs to be willing to pay, like, for example, so many members do to public radio stations voluntarily to keep that information and news coming. We have been talking with NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. David, thank you. You bet. 25 years after the Good Friday peace agreement in Northern Ireland, Belfast still bears the scars of decades of sectarian violence. So-called peace walls are barriers built to keep Catholic and Protestant communities apart. NPR's Fatima Al-Kassab reports from the still-divided city. So this is a lower part of the peace wall here. You can see the barbed wire. Gordon McDade is showing me around the garden of a youth centre he runs in Belfast. The centre straddles the local Catholic and Protestant neighbourhoods with a peace wall that runs right through the garden. So I just live right across the peace wall to the left. And then I would live on the right side of the peace wall. Carter Gibson and Crystal McCann grew up around the corner from each other on either side of the wall. Crystal lives on the predominantly Catholic side and Carter on the predominantly Protestant side. The teenagers say they would have never crossed paths if they hadn't joined this youth club. The peace wall still divides their communities. If that wasn't there, we could literally walk to each other's house without a worry. They come here to make friends with young people from the other side of the wall without having to worry about being judged. I think people just have this sort of image of like Catholics and Protestants are just being like constant fighting between them. The first walls were constructed by the British Army in 1969 as a military response to sectarian violence. More of these barriers have been erected around the city since, official and unofficial ones. Politicians in Northern Ireland set the target date of 2023, this year, for all the walls to come down. But a quarter century after the Good Friday peace agreement, there are actually now more of them than ever before. Our streets were the trenches. Paul Crawford's father was killed in the conflict known as the Troubles. He campaigns for victims' rights, and he lives in the predominantly Catholic West Belfast. He wants the walls to stay put, as a sort of war memorial. The soldiers have gone home. There is relative peace. But we still live where we lived. And in recent years, these walls have even become a tourist destination for people wanting to learn about the city's history. The walls not only shape the urban landscape, says Garrett Carr, from Queen's University, Belfast, they also shape people's mindset. So it's part of the psyche, really. It takes time to get over that. Once you start taking into account inherited traumas, you probably shouldn't be in too big a hurry to take down people's walls. They may rely on them. And for many locals, they still provide an important sense of security. Many of Belfast's peace walls have gates within them. Officials from Northern Ireland's Department of Justice lock the gates every night to prevent any clashes. It's not when the gates are closed that people are locked in, they can't get out anywhere, it's just that they're separated from each other. Pastor Jack McKee leads the New Life City Church, which sits in a no-man's land between two of these gates. He's petitioned for them to stay open later and later into the night. Baby steps, he says, 
towards removing the barriers altogether. They've shifted it now from 6.30 to 7.30. Now, within a few months' time, they promised they're going to keep them open to 8.30 and then to 9.30. So they're doing it in stages in the hope that no one notices. <laughs> Crystal and Carter say it would make their lives easier if the gates didn't close at night. But they understand why some people are hesitant to get rid of them. At the minute, people are just scared because there are still sometimes riots that happen from, like through the gate. But I also think that having them open would kickstart a, a really big change in our community. I would love for them to be open, but I also like understand why they're there. But like, if we can do it, if we can come to this club without a problem or anyone else judging us, like, why can't everyone else? For now, the walls still stand and the gates continue to close. If a little later every night. Fatima Al Kasab, NPR News, Belfast. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. Coming up later today, former Trump advisor Peter Navarro has been convicted of contempt of Congress after not complying with a subpoena from the House January 6th committee. Stay tuned for more on this developing story right here at 90.9 WBUR. The heat is still on high, 93 degrees now. Should head down to about 72 overnight tonight. And then for tomorrow, should be hot, but not as today has been. Should be in the upper 80s tomorrow with partly sunny skies. As of now, the weekend is looking as if it'll start up with some sunshine, but clouds make their way in for Sunday. Upper 80s on Saturday, the low 80s on Sunday. 93 degrees in Boston at 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Neither side militarily is making much ground, and so it's hard to see militarily the conflict ending soon. That's one analyst's current view of the Ukraine war. But to historians, it also sounds a lot like the Korean War. Could the Korean armistice agreement signed 70 years ago serve as a model for Russia and Ukraine now? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Several victims of a deadly Russian missile attack on a market in eastern Ukraine were laid to rest today. At least 16 people were killed, more than 30 injured in the Donetsk region, as Ukraine's three-month-old counteroffensive against Russian forces continues to gain momentum. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg told EU lawmakers today in Brussels it shows why allies need to keep backing Ukraine. The Ukrainians are gradually uh, gaining uh, ground, um, uh, and uh, uh, it is uh, uh, and, and it proves uh, the importance of our support and also our ability and, and, and willingness uh, to continue uh, the support. The latest attacks by Moscow cast a pall over a two-day visit by the U.S. Secretary of State, who announced another billion-dollar aid package to Ukraine to help 
with demining efforts. Secretary Tony Blinken said since his last visit a year ago, Ukraine's military has taken back more than 50 percent of the territory Russia captured during its invasion 18 months ago. Almost all voters in the U.S. use a paper ballot and have it counted by a machine not connected to the Internet. But as NPR's Miles Parks tells us, there are a few select voters who are quietly offered vote online. The cybersecurity community is unanimous. Internet voting is incredibly insecure. And yet in 2020, thousands of U.S. voters submitted their ballots online. It's an option that's offered in some capacity in more than 30 states to military and overseas voters. And in recent years, a number of states have expanded the option to voters with disabilities, too. That has many cybersecurity experts concerned that lawmakers don't grasp just how insecure the voting method is. Once votes touch the Internet, they warn, there's no feasible way at this point to be confident about their accuracy. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A poll out today shows that New England residents are increasingly concerned about the health of the ocean. WBUR's Paula Mora reports that they're worried about plastic, pollution, and climate change. The poll found that more respondents are concerned about threats to the ocean health, including acidification and overfishing, compared to past polls. Priscilla Brooks is with the Conservation Law Foundation. The advocacy group surveyed 3,500 people in all New England states. The respondents view a healthy ocean as very important to their quality of life, to the economy and to coastal communities, and to the region's ability to deal with climate change. She says people also expressed strong support for establishing protected areas in the ocean for endangered species. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. A federal judge in Boston today sentenced a Miami woman to five years in prison for illegally obtaining more than $1 million in pandemic-related loans. The scheme targeted Massachusetts and five other states. Prosecutors also say 32-year-old Danielle Miller used fake licenses with the names of Massachusetts residents to charter a private jet and rent a luxury apartment in Florida. The leadership of the Boston Firefighters Union says it will meet with its members next week to talk about the tentative contract with the city. Mayor Michelle Wu announced the deal during Monday's Labor Day breakfast. Terms of the deal have not been released. The union says it has not yet scheduled a ratification vote. Boston Marathon is adding two new divisions for para-athletes next year. Race organizers are also increasing total prize money in the para-athletic divisions. Wheelchair race winners will earn $40,000 prize, up from $25,000 this year. An additional $50,000 will be awarded for wheelchair racers who set a new course record. Red Sox play it cool tonight as they rest up for a seven-game homestand that starts with a weekend series in uh, with Baltimore at Fenway Park. In the forecast, bright, mercifully breezy this afternoon, partly cloudy tonight, down around 72 degrees. For tomorrow, look for partly sunny skies, temperatures in the upper 80s. 93 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, 
a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. This week, we've been looking at the money pouring into direct air capture technology, giant machines designed to pull carbon dioxide out of the sky. The federal government is investing billions in this, and the U.S. oil company, Occidental Petroleum, is a big player. So a company profiting off carbon emissions also plans to profit off the fight against climate change. Is that good for the planet or bad? NPR's Camila Dominoski digs into that question in the last installment of our series. At this point, major climate groups agree that the world needs to pull a lot of carbon dioxide back out of the sky. The giant machines Oxy is scaling up could be crucial to that effort. But those climate groups are very clear we need to do that on top of massively reducing our use of oil and gas. Vicki Holub, the CEO of Occidental Petroleum, thinks those groups are wrong. I asked her about it this summer. You're outlining, it sounds like, an alternative vision of the future where a, a higher level of oil and gas operation could continue offset by an equally higher level of, of carbon dioxide removal of DAC. Is that is that fair? That's fair. Uh, and that's exactly right. Same tech, different goals. So if you care about the climate, what should you make of this? I want to take you to West Texas, where Occidental is building its first direct air capture plant to meet three men who were happy for three different reasons. At the groundbreaking for that plant, scientist David Keith was obviously thrilled. He pioneered this direct air capture technology. He sees Oxy's involvement as a clear win for the planet. It used to be the oil companies wouldn't take climate seriously at all. I don't think this is happening because Oxy just woke up and got happy. I think this is happening because the environmental community is winning. That is, Oxy is responding to pressure from policymakers and the public and looking ahead to a world where oil demand could drop, in which case it could do this instead. Keith knows Oxy wants to keep making oil, but to this line of thinking, it doesn't matter what Oxy wants. It matters what Oxy does. And what Oxy is doing is using its money and expertise to scale up a technology that could reduce the world's emissions. That could be really good for the climate. At the same party, local officials were also celebrating, mostly about local jobs, both the jobs with this project and all the county's oil jobs. Here's County Judge Dustin Fawcett. We don't need to throw out all the oil and gas industry. We, it, it can never happen. Can we reduce the carbon footprint? Absolutely. If we inject more carbon into the earth and somehow we get better returns from our oil and gas reserves, that's a win-win. Uh, there, there's a lot of win-wins in this industry if we think cleverly about how we do it. This is close to the vision that Occidental lays out for itself. Extend oil production, but cancel out the carbon footprint, a sort of compromise. Even if this works, it would take mind-boggling quantities of energy and prolong problems like air pollution. But Oxy has some allies in the climate movement who say they're being realistic. We use a lot of oil. What if we can't bring oil demand down quickly? Wouldn't zero carbon oil be much better than the alternative? Why not try? And for one answer to that, let's leave the party. I ran into independent oilman Wayman Pitchford in nearby Midland, Texas. He was happy about the plant too, but not because it'll be good for the planet. He thinks that's nonsense. It would be like draining the ocean with straws. But it shuts some people up. 
Specifically, he thinks it will shut up people who keep talking about carbon emissions and the need to cut oil consumption. So let's, build, let's go run out there and build all these plants we can build to shut up whoever we need to shut up. The history of carbon offsets is littered with things that sounded like wins but turned out to be closer to cons. And Pitchford's hope is some environmentalists fear that direct air capture will be a distraction simply used to derail climate efforts. So is this a win for the planet? A pragmatic compromise? Or is the oil industry pulling a fast one on the climate movement? The answer doesn't just depend on what Oxy does. It will depend on what the rest of the world does in response. Politicians, companies, people like you. Will they treat air capture as a tool to speed up efforts to cut emissions? Or as an excuse to slow them down? Camila Dominoski, NPR News. And now a look at the former spymaster making foreign policy moves in Turkey, a country with a pivotal role to play on the world stage, sitting as it does between East and West. That's Turkey's new foreign minister. Appointed after President Recep Tayyip Erdogan won a new term in May, he comes from the country's intelligence service and has had a lot of influence behind the scenes. And now he's out in front and seems to be working to make a stormy region a little more stable. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports. Shortly after being named foreign minister, Hakan Fidan met with his counterpart from neighboring Greece. At the ensuing news conference, Fidan declared that the two countries that have often found themselves at odds were entering, quote, a new and positive phase in our relations. The revival of dialogue channels and high-level contacts is a positive development for us. My colleague and I reaffirmed our mutual will to continue this and we reiterated our belief that the problems will be solved through constructive dialogue between two neighbors and allies. This was a sharp contrast to the tone just a few years ago, when Turkish and Greek officials traded bitter accusations over drilling rights in the Aegean Sea, among other things. These days, Fidan said, even issues as thorny as that can and should be resolved, quote, with respect for mutual rights and interests. We have differences of opinion in the Aegean. We have been discussing them, and we agreed to bring new approaches to solve the problems. Fidan's early career as intelligence chief sparked concern in some countries, notably Israel. But over the years, according to multiple reports, Israel and other countries started to see Fidan as refashioning the Turkish intelligence agency into a non-political, forward-looking service that got results. Fidan has also had a long and close relationship with Prime Minister and then-President Erdogan. Analyst Soner Chaptai at the Washington Institute for Near East Peace says Fidan was sometimes referred to as Erdogan's black box, and he stood by him during some tumultuous times. He has been with Erdogan during the Arab uprisings when Erdogan tried to install like-minded leaders in power in places such as Egypt and Syria. Fidan was with Erdogan when Turkey suffered a coup attempt. Fidan and his agency they stood up against the coup plotters from within the military. And so Fidan has been at Erdogan's side at every turn. Fidan also impressed Turkey's allies, including in Washington. When Fidan came to Washington as Turkey's intelligence chief and had meetings in the Senate and with the U.S. government, everyone at the time who met him told me that they were quite impressed by his command of his topics, the English language, and the ability to engage anyone in discussions where he left people quite impressed. As for what Fidan's leadership might mean for Turkey's foreign policy, Chaptai and others say the bottom line is that he's already proved himself to be a safe pair of hands when it comes to managing Turkey's international affairs and its role as a NATO and Western ally. 
But Chaptai also says Fidan is bringing a number of intelligence officials with him to the foreign ministry, and he says that speaks volumes about the rising profile of Turkey's intelligence agency. So you could say that Turkey's intelligence agency is probably the most powerful foreign policy and national security decision-making agency inside the country right now. Observers from inside and outside Turkey will be watching to see how Fidan decides to wield that power in the coming months. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A recent report from the Army shows women face intense sexism in the Special Forces. These elite units have only made room for women over the past eight years, and watchdog groups want the Pentagon to address their conditions. Steve Walsh with WHRO reports. Crystal Ellington served as a helicopter mechanic with an Army unit called the Night Stalkers. In 2019, she deployed alongside Rangers in Iraq. I would have superiors say things to me like, I miss the good old days when women couldn't serve and you're only here because we had to check a box. And so really hearing those types of things on a day-to-day basis made me wonder if I had made the right decision. Comments similar to the ones Ellington heard in Iraq were part of a recently released Army report which pointed to several issues women face, including feelings of isolation in special operations. Ellington says she cut her army career short when her command mishandled her sexual assault case. The mishandling of my case was something that made it very hard to do my job. It made it hard to come to work and feel like I would be heard and understood with the emotional battles that I was having on a day-to-day basis. The army did not respond to our request for comment. Ellington, who is black, says it was also disappointing that the Army still hasn't addressed how race can be just as large a barrier as sexism for women. She did see what the report called benevolent sexism. There's a difference between being welcoming and being inclusive. So being welcoming is kind of showing that warmth and friendly nature, but right underneath the surface, it's still those attitudes that women aren't equal Women need to be coddled. Women need special treatment. The internal Army report surveyed 5,000 men and women in Army special operations, including civilians. One warrant officer told the researchers that women should never be on elite special operations teams, saying, we have enough problems. We don't need females to make more. A senior sergeant said he decided to retire, so, quote, I didn't have to lead a team containing a female. Army Special Operations Command Sergeant Major Joanne Newman helped unveil the report. I do believe that the vast majority of the negative comments, unfortunately, did come from senior non-commissioned officers. And so it does seem to indicate that it is generational. Chris Fuhrer is a 1985 West Point graduate. The problem is those senior NCOs have a tremendous amount of influence on the young soldiers as they enter the force. For the past eight years, Fuhrer has run a mentorship program for women attending U.S. Army Ranger School. It's important for senior NCOs to tell junior soldiers, hey, you don't hunt among your team. You know, these women are not targets. These women are your teammates. Though over 100 women have made it through Army Ranger School and a handful have become part of the storied Green Berets, sexism is still rampant in special operations. The results were originally compiled in 2021, but Fuhrer says attitudes are virtually unchanged. 
Nearly half of men surveyed felt standards had been lowered to allow women, though some of the worst comments she says she's encountered come from special operations vets. When the first women graduated from Ranger School, General Scott Miller invited anyone who thought that the standards had been changed. He said, the door's open, come back, come, come and go through a course with women. We'll gladly run you through Ranger School again, and then you can tell us if you think we changed the standards. Nobody took up the general's offer. Currently, roughly 9% of special operations are women, though women make up roughly 20% of the armed forces. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. The consequences of high heat on schools coming up in about 15 minutes. We did not set a record high temperature in Boston today, and it's unlikely that we will. The high so far has been 93 degrees. Boston's record temperature for the state was 102. That was set back in 1881. National Weather Service meteorologist Andrew Lacanto says that parts of Worcester and parts of Connecticut broke or came close to breaking today's record. Hartford, Windsor Locks, that was 94 degrees, and the record there was 93 set in 2015. And then Worcester has tied its record of, of 90 degrees. So it's still, again, there's still another hour or two of, of further warming. In Providence, it hit 90 today. While that is not a record, it's the first time this year that Providence has reached 90 degrees. We've got a little bit of a breeze out there, but it's hot no matter what. 92 degrees now in the Boston area should fall back to the low 70s overnight tonight. Then tomorrow, making it to the upper 80s tops. Sunshine and some fair weather clouds for the weekend. Partly sunny on Saturday, still in the high 80s. Sunday, fun's over. Mostly cloudy, chance of showers up around 82 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And the half-god of rainfall at ART a new basketball epic fusing Greek mythology and Yoruba spirituality. Starts tomorrow, amrep.org. Ukraine is doing something that's never been done before, operating a nuclear power plant in the middle of a war. Unfortunately, the Zaporizhia situation has shown how vulnerable nuclear power plants can be. Why Ukrainian officials say the risk is necessary in a country still haunted by the meltdown in Chernobyl. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. World leaders arrive in India this weekend to attend the annual gathering of the world's 20 largest economies. In a London newspaper today, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi boasted about his country's economic growth. But many young Indians say they have not benefited from it. Raksha Kumar reports from Bangalore. On a recent morning at the outskirts of Bangalore City, about 40 young men wait impatiently at a busy intersection. They are construction workers, carpenters and plumbers. This is the unofficial spot for young job seekers from surrounding villages. Kind of an open market for less skilled workers. There are such places outside most cities across the country. 17-year-old Naveen Madiga comes here on most days and hopes to be picked up for work. Today, he is lucky. An employment agent quickly arrived in a minivan and whisked him away for a day job. 
As he gets into the minivan, Madiga says he is always looking for construction work. Some days he gets a job and some days he doesn't. According to official statistics, India's unemployment rate has been steadily decreasing since the COVID pandemic. But many economists say that it is still a major problem for many young Indians like Madiga. In a recent study, the Mumbai-based think tank, the Center for Monitoring Indian Economy, finds that less than half of those between the ages of 15 and 39 have jobs. Jayati Ghosh, an economics professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, shares the same observation. Our employment rate has been falling in a period when we're supposed to be growing. And that's crazy. Generating high-paying jobs has always been an issue for India's governments. But Ghosh says the current problem was exacerbated in 2016 when Prime Minister Narendra Modi suddenly stopped the use of 86% of the country's currency notes. It was then followed by a hastily implemented tax system called the Goods and Services Tax. And the way the government dealt with the pandemic shocked the system further. The recovery package after COVID was oriented to big business. It wasn't for small micro-enterprises. It wasn't for self-employed people. And within those big business, we've seen even greater concentration. The top 100 companies account for 90% of the corporate profits. That means the companies are very profitable, but they don't generate much employment, she says. This is despite the fact that India's economy grew at more than 7% last year. For context, the US's growth rate was 2.1% and China's was 3%. Vibha Atri is a researcher at the Centre for Study of Developing Societies in New Delhi. In a recent study, she and her team spoke to thousands of young Indians. When we questioned the youth about the most pressing issue facing the country, 4 in 10 pointed to unemployment. And poverty and inflation were the second and third major concerns. The authorities have taken note of the distress call. And let's turn our attention now to the Prime Minister's mega-job push. Prime Minister Modi is expected to distribute appointment letters to 70,000 young people. But analysts say this type of government-driven schemes are not enough. And that poses a big problem for Modi. As his government boasts about India's economic potential at this weekend's G20 summit, its unemployment problem may well hold the country back. For NPR News, I'm Raksha Kumar in Bangalore. Okay, football fans, it's time. The NFL is back. In tonight's season opener, the reigning Super Bowl champs, my hometown Kansas City Chiefs, host the Detroit Lions. And the season kicks off in earnest this Sunday and Monday with everyone else in action, including one veteran quarterback taking the field for the first time not in a Green Bay Packers jersey. That's right, I am talking about Aaron Rodgers. Let's look ahead to the upcoming season with Nora Princiati, staff writer for The Ringer. Hi, Nora. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. All right, Nora, you probably know how I would answer this question, but I want to turn this one over to you. Who is looking like a top contender going into this NFL season? Wow. Well, I really get to suck up here, I guess, because I, the Chiefs are the team to beat. They are pretty clearly, at least to my eye, the most dominant team going into the season that has everything to do with their quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. And a lot of what I'll be watching for over the course of 2023 is going to be if a genuine contender to knock them off that Super Bowl pedestal emerges. But in the AFC, in the Chiefs Conference in particular, there are teams like the Bills who 
have been almost as, as dominant and explosive in the regular season as Kansas City, but are hoping to get over sort of a postseason hump. There are the Jets and Aaron Rodgers who are going all in on this season, but it really comes down to can anyone beat the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes to me and probably to you, I'm guessing. <laughs> that is very true. All right. I want to move on here and talk about the Aaron Rodgers of it all. I mean, he'd been with the Packers his entire career, won a Super Bowl, some MVP awards. And this year, after like a boatload of speculation, he will be playing instead for the New York Jets. I know it's early, but so far, does it seem like he's fitting in with the Jets? Not only does it seem like he is fitting in, it seems like he is their poster child. He is their identity. The Jets are the Aaron Rodgers show now. And and in New York and with a guy who has often been a little bit controversial in public, but is, is comfortable being well-known, being famous, maybe sometimes even being infamous like Aaron Rodgers is, it's probably the only thing that we could have expected to happen. But it means that the stakes of the season for them are incredibly high. It's a great roster, but it can be hard to get a new player, a new quarterback, even someone as talented and experienced as Aaron Rodgers up to speed quickly. So there's a lot of risk in what they're doing with him as well. So Nora, last thing, what teams have been flying under the radar this year? Do you have a dark horse pick that you think might have a breakout season? One that I would definitely bring up as a dark horse is the Seattle Seahawks. I see there being four NFC contenders, and it's Seattle, San Francisco, the Dallas Cowboys, and the Philadelphia Eagles. I think a lot of people would give you three and leave Seattle out of there, but I really think that they're ready. Their quarterback, Geno Smith, had a breakout season last year after winning the job. He'd been a career backup for most of his NFL life, and this is a year in which for basically the first time, he's had an entire offseason to prepare, knowing that he was going to be the starter. And then the team as a whole, it's deep, it's young, they have a talented core. So to me, I think that they're ready not just to make some noise in the NFC West, but in the NFC as a whole, I think they really do belong in that top tier. That's Nora Princiati, staff writer for The Ringer. Nora, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davies, David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. 
This is 90.9 WBUR, bright and thankfully breezy this afternoon, partly cloudy overnight tonight, down around 72 degrees. Tomorrow and Saturday should be partly sunny. Highs may stick to the 80s. Sunday, clouds on the march should be gray and cooler or maybe damp, too. Highs about 82 degrees. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm executive editor for News Dan Mozzi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sweltering heat is for school districts to let students go home early or close entirely and switch to virtual learning. And many are deciding to rethink their approach to outdoor activities such as recess. The consequences of extreme heat coming up on this Thursday, September 7th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, wildfires are a growing threat and a growing business opportunity. The industry around preparedness is new, barely regulated, and growing fast. 3M has agreed to pay $6 billion to veterans and service members who suffered hearing loss due to faulty earplugs. And Dorchester rapper Key explores different sounds as she makes a name for herself in the music scene. We'll have the latest in our Sound On series coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is departing this hour for a summit of the world's 20 leading economies. He does so amid new questions about his chances for re-election. CNN is out with a poll showing job approval rating of just 39 percent. NPR's Asma Khalid reports India will be Biden's first stop on a trip that will also take him to Vietnam. Both India and Vietnam neighbor China. And like much of the president's foreign policy agenda, the subtext here is about building relationships in Asia to counter China's influence, even if these friends may not fully embrace the same values around human rights and press freedoms. Biden begins his trip by meeting with India as Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who was welcomed with a red carpet when he visited Washington this summer. The president will also participate in the annual G20 Leader Summit being held in New Delhi. Notably, both China's Xi Jinping and Russia's Vladimir Putin are not expected to attend. Then it's on to Hanoi, where there are expectations Vietnam will formally upgrade ties with the United States. Asma Khalid, NPR News. A federal jury in Washington, D.C. has convicted former Trump administration aide Peter Navarro of contempt of Congress. Navarro was charged after ignoring a subpoena last year from the House Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Prosecutors argued Navarro chose allegiance to former President Trump over obeying the subpoena, while Navarro's lawyers maintain he felt he was protected by executive privilege. Navarro, whose lawyers say they will appeal, faces up to a year in jail and a fine of up to $100,000 on each of the two misdemeanor counts against him. Actor Danny Masterson has been sentenced to 30 years to life in prison for rape. Masterson is best known for his role in the hit sitcom That 70s Show, which ran from 1998 to 2006. 
As NPR's Andrew Limbong explains, he was found guilty of raping two women in May. The two rapes happened when Masterson was at the height of his sitcom fame. The women said he drugged and raped them in his home in the Hollywood Hills. A former girlfriend of Masterson's also accused him of raping her, but the jury failed to reach a verdict on that charge. Masterson is one of the more famous members of the Church of Scientology and met all the women through connections in the church. Prosecutors allege that he used his standing within the church to cover up any claims of sexual misconduct. A statement from District Attorney George Gascon wrote, quote, This has been a long and arduous road for the victims of Mr. Masterson. They not only survived his abuse, they also survived a system that is often not kind to victims. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. Number of people filing first-time claims for unemployment benefits last week follow its lowest level in seven months. First-time jobless claims dropped by 13,000 to a seasonally adjusted rate of 216,000. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 57 points. The Nasdaq fell 123 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two reports released today find MBTA track inspectors failed at some of their duties because they weren't experienced enough or they weren't trained properly. The issues led to numerous speed restrictions on the T this year. Addressing the reports today at a news conference, MBTA General Manager Philip Eng vowed to beef up staffing levels and training. We are restoring the service, that we are going to win back public confidence. I fully believe that we will do it. Um, I just know it's not as fast as everyone wants. It's not as fast as I would like. At the same time, I want to make sure we do it right. Eng says that the T has already put new rules in place to make track inspections more efficient and to improve communication among MBTA departments. The Judge Rotenberg Educational Center in Canton can continue to use electric skin shock therapy on its clients. The state Supreme Judicial Court made the ruling today. The high court also ruled state agencies can challenge the therapy's use on a case-by-case basis. Treatment supporters say it helps curtail dangerous behavior. Critics, including the state, say it's harmful. We have a heat advisory in effect until 8 o'clock tonight. National Weather Service warns the hot temperatures and high humidity could make you sick. Mara Hoplomazian reports that some people who work outside or in hot indoor environments are especially at risk for heat illness. Heat is hard on the body, and as it becomes an increasing threat due to climate change, advocates say workers are reporting fainting or getting heat stroke on the job. Francisca Sepulveda is the director of the Immigrant Workers Center at the Massachusetts Coalition for Occupational Safety and Health. She says people who work outside in jobs like landscaping or construction or indoors in hot environments like warehouses or laundromats are super exposed. We've seen a lot of workers going through like heat stress. I think that the concern is definitely like them not having the conditions to avoid getting sick. She says employers have a responsibility to provide their workers with access to water, shade and breaks to keep them safe. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplomazian. The heat is still on high now, 92 degrees in the Boston area. Shit head down to about 72 overnight tonight. Tomorrow, almost as hot as today has been, but not quite. Should stick to the upper 80s with partly sunny skies. It looks as if the weekend should start up with sunshine Saturday, but then clouds intrude on Sunday. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. We are looking into an issue that's disrupting the back-to-school season across the country, the weather. 
This week, sweltering heat has forced districts up and down the East Coast and across the Midwest to close schools early or, in some cases, switch to virtual learning. And schools from Kansas to Oklahoma to Pennsylvania are now rethinking their approach to outdoor activities like recess. NPR education reporter Sequoia Carrillo has been looking into this and joins us now. Hey, Sequoia. Hi, Juana. Okay, so before we get into how schools are dealing, let's just start with why outdoor activities like recess are actually an important part of the school day. I mean, not just as a favorite, quote unquote, subject for a lot of students. Like, why do they actually matter? (laughs) Well, it's a favorite for a reason, right? It provides a much needed break for students during the school day. Kids, especially young kids, really need time to let off some energy in order to come back to the classroom more focused and ready to concentrate. It's also an important time to develop social skills like playing games with friends and ultimately just give kids time to do what they want. And it isn't just recess. PE, which often also happens outside, also checks a lot of those boxes. When students are cooped up all day, they get antsy, behavior gets worse, focus slips. But these are also all things that happen when students get hot. Okay, lots of questions here. A big one. What are some schools doing to make sure that kids still get some sort of active time when it's sweltering outside? So I talked to a school in Nashville where temperatures have been consistently around 90 degrees since they started classes in early August. And they've tried breaking up recess into two sections. So rather than 30 minutes outside, they're doing 20 minutes and 10 minute blocks to make temperatures more bearable. They said their next move is to shift recess earlier in the morning if the heat doesn't break soon. In other places around the country, schools are doing like a rainy day recess, so board games or crafting inside. But not all schools have AC inside to fall back on. In Oklahoma, temperatures have been in the hundreds. And Beth Wallace, a member station reporter with State Impact Oklahoma, visited an elementary school in Macomb to see how they're coping. Here's some of what she found. With the day's heat index sitting at 106 degrees, there's not much you can do outside for very long. And at Macomb Public Schools, about 50 miles southeast of Oklahoma City, educators are having to get creative. Teachers switch off holding a sprinkler in the school courtyard for kids to run through. You are wet as. You want a hug? Oh, I'm good, thank you. Macomb is home to one of the smallest districts in the state, and that means resources in this very rural area can be scarce. But students still have to get out and play. And it isn't just recess that's being affected. If there was an odd man out, then he would be out. P.E. is usually in the gym or outside, but on a day as hot as this one, the nearly hour-long class has to adapt. The school's gym doesn't have air conditioning. Whatever the heat index is outside, you can add about 10 degrees to inside the gym. So instead, Coach James Hancock's third and fourth grade girls' P.E. is in a classroom. They run back and forth, playing a Simon Says-type game called Ships and Sailors. It might not be ideal, but when it's this hot, there aren't a lot of options. What do you think about being inside for P.E.? Good. You like it? Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. What do you like about it? That we get to exercise. Okay. Yeah. Would you rather be in the gym? No. <laughs> and who can blame them? If you add 10 degrees to the heat index outside, that puts the gym at 116 degrees. For NPR News, I'm Beth Wallace in Macomb, Oklahoma. And NPR Sequoia Carrillo is back with us. Sequoia, I mean, listening to those kids running through that sprinkler, it sounds like schools are really putting in some extra work here. But I mean, 
don't teachers also get a break during recess? What does this mean for them and their workloads? Oh, definitely. I mean, ideally, yes, right? Recess should be a bit of a break for teachers. Having to hold a sprinkler for your students like they're doing in Macomb is definitely far outside their job description. And that's just one more reason why experts say a lot of these changes are stopgap measures rather than actual long-term solutions. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo, thank you. Thank you. 3M has agreed to pay $6 billion to veterans and service members who say their hearing was damaged while they used faulty earplugs made by a 3M subsidiary. Now it's up to the quarter million plaintiffs to decide if they want to participate in the settlement. Jay Price of member station WUNC has the story. Today is an important step forward for 3M. Kevin Rhodes, 3M's chief legal affairs officer, explained the deal to investors during a conference call. It is an important step to end investor uncertainty over the cost to settle one of the largest mass torts in history and for the quarter of a million people who have filed claims, like James Parsons of Sanford, North Carolina. There's no such thing as a quiet room. The retired Special Forces Master Sergeant suffers from a ringing in the ears, he says, as a constant, almost maddening presence. The only way I can ever describe it to anybody is actually take a TV and turn the volume up to it matches my tinnitus, and people are like, oh my God, that's what you hear? At that point, he says, the TV's volume is nearly all the way up. Parsons spent a total of almost three years fighting in Afghanistan, often, he said, while wearing combat arms earplugs. Issued to troops from 2003 to 2015, they were designed to let conversation and commands through, but blunt the force of loud noises like gunfire and explosions. But the plaintiffs say they could let damaging sounds through by not sealing properly. At age 52, Parsons has moderate to severe hearing loss. It really makes being social really, really awkward, uh, to include at work. I work for the military or work alongside the military, so things are a little bit different. But to go through civilian life in a civilian world where people, you're trying to read their lips as much as you are trying to hear what they're saying, is frustrating. 3M says the settlement is not an admission of liability, and the earplugs worked when used properly. The deal still faces hurdles. A big one is 98% of the claimants need to agree to participate or 3M can back out. But plaintiff's attorney Christopher Seeger, who helped negotiate the deal, says he's confident enough will be satisfied with the settlement amounts and want to avoid facing a lengthy court fight, one they could lose on their own. Justice doesn't always look perfect, but you can't let perfect get in the way of really good. Uh, this was a really good result to get some compensation and get some people taken care of quickly. He says the plan is to organize settlements into three broad categories, including an accelerated process for those who have modest issues and are willing to accept smaller payments. Those settlements could top out around $25,000. Those who have suffered serious harm could get substantially more. Plaintiffs like Parsons, though, say the money really isn't the point. For me, it's about accountability. He says as an Army senior non-commissioned officer, his job had been looking out for his troops. So he felt obligated to send a message that suppliers shouldn't sell the military defective safety equipment. Another plaintiff, South Florida Navy veteran Sandra Burbano, says she's also looking for accountability. I wanted it like more direct impact in the sense that whoever was responsible to actually do some jail time 
but in reality, I knew it would have happened. I wish I could say, well, you know, with this money, I can have a surgery. Burbano works in IT, dealing with clients on the phone. She got hearing aids from the VA, but her hearing loss is still a constant problem. And there's no operation, no amount of money, she says, that can fix that. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Durham, North Carolina. So, Ari, when you talk to your dogs, do you do that kind of high-pitched voice thing? You mean like, oh, you're such a good doggy? No, absolutely not. I talk to my dogs like they're guests on All Things Considered. (laughs) Well, that aside, now researchers in Hungary have actually looked at that phenomenon scientifically to see if other people's high-pitched doggy babble really does resonate with pets. As a researcher, when you see something like this and you feel that, okay, this is weird, you start to think and start to do research on it. Anna Gergay is with the Research Center for Natural Sciences in Budapest and, yes, owns a dog. Let, let, me, let me call her. If she's in front of me, maybe I am better. Jimmy, get her. Ooh, super, it's hot. Even in Hungarian, it sounds the same. The higher pitch, the different tempo, it's it's almost like baby talk, right? Sounds kind of like it. And Gergely says while infants seem to respond more to baby talk versus regular speech, they wanted to test this out in dogs because dogs might actually be an interesting model for this phenomenon in humans. So I'm, I'm looking at the list of study subjects. It is 19 family dogs, golden retrievers, cocker spaniels. I am... Frankly disappointed not to see any English pointers on the list like Bruce and Simone, but maybe the results will generalize. What did they find? So they had these dogs lay down in a brain scanner and then they played back recordings of men and women talking normally or doing baby talk or doggy talk. And this is really important to note that none of the speakers were familiar the dogs. Because uh, presumably that could bias the results if they heard their owner. Exactly. And by observing the brains of these very good girls and boys, the scientists found that certain parts of their brains did indeed respond more to the dog-directed or baby-directed speech. You know, the high-pitched stuff compared to the regular adult talking. The details are in the journal Communications Biology. So you're saying I should speak to Bruce and Simone in a cutesy, high-pitched doggy voice and not a radio broadcaster voice. Exactly that. But Gergay says they also found something unexpected. The dog's brain responses were even more sensitive, get this, to the female voices. <sighs> Rude. Yeah, uh, I think male owners can really use a little bit higher pitch and also more variable one. I, but I mean it, really, really. My husband also uh, used higher voice and it works. I will try the science when I get home tonight. Me too. Give it a shot. And Ari, maybe we should start saying that dogs are woman's best friend. You can say that, Juana. I will. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. More than two years after 98 people died in Surfside, Florida, federal investigators released new findings about the cause of the condo tower collapse. That story is coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. Today, ups and downs on Wall Street. The Dow picked up nearly two-tenths of a percent. S&P was on the downside. It lost about three-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq lost even more ground, nearly a full percent. Details coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. The time now is 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. 
Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. Red Sox get to take the night off before they host the Orioles tomorrow at Fenway Park. Boston's playing 13 games in the next 13 days. And the NFL season opens tonight. It's the Kansas City Chiefs versus Detroit. Patriots open Sunday at home against the Eagle. Tom Brady will be honored at halftime. In the forecast, a lovely sunny day, except for the obvious. Temperatures reached a high of 93 degrees. It's 92 right now. Tonight should be back down around 72 with partly cloudy skies. Friday should bring sunshine and clouds both. A little bit more comfortable than today has been in the upper 80s. Saturday, partly sunny, breezy again in the upper 80s. And Sunday, gray skies for a change should only make it to about 82. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Time for this week's science roundup from our friends at NPR's shortwave podcast, Aaron Scott and Regina Barber. Good to have you both here. Hey, Ari. Hey, Ari. You've brought us three science stories that caught your eye this week. What have you got for us this time? We have drug-resistant germs catching a ride on air pollution particles. The mysterious eating habits of black holes. And how farms can support biodiversity. All right, let's start with the dark stuff. As if (laughs) drug-resistant germs were not good enough, they're riding on air pollution? Yeah, but not any germs. We're talking about superbugs, like bacteria resistant to antibiotics. A lot of these come from places like farms, hospitals, sewage treatment facilities, and over a million people died globally in 2019 from drug-resistant bacterial infections. And it's estimated this problem is just going to get worse decades to come. Yeah, and we've long known that these bacteria lurk in the soil and in waterways, but what is new is that it turns out air pollution could also be a major contributing factor to the spread of these antibiotic-resistant germs. Our colleague Gabriel Spitzer just wrote about a recent study in the journal Lancet Planetary Health that found that globally, the rates of particulate air pollution and antibiotic-resistant infection are closely linked. They're both on the rise overall, and low-income regions of the world tend to face the highest rates of both of them. That sounds really unpleasant, but do we Mm -hmm. know that one causes the other, or is there a chance that antimicrobial resistance is just more common in the same kinds of places that have a lot of air pollution? Right. We should say that this study does not establish a causal relationship between air pollution and antibiotic resistance or examine the actual biological mechanism that might be at play here. But researchers did adjust for factors that could affect the rate of antibiotic resistance, like 
socioeconomic status, health expenditures, and education. And it still does show this really strong and interesting association between the two. So how does this actually work? I'm imagining a drug-resistant bacteria riding side saddle on a air pollution <laughs> particle. Like, <laughs> paint a picture for me. It's, it's actually a good image, Aria. One of the researchers NPR talked to didn't use the equestrian metaphor. They actually went with <laughs> islands. That hmm. These are like islands that the bacteria can hitch a ride on and can actually set up little communities that are kind of floating around on the particulates through the air. And what we don't know much about is whether these little floating islands can actually spread antibiotic-resistant infections to people. So we're not yet ready to say that air pollution does spread antibiotic resistance. Sounds like there's more work to be done here. Yes, yes. There's more study that needs to be done. But the thing is, if it turns out there is a link, this could give countries more incentive to reduce air pollution, given that we already know that pollution itself can damage your health. All right. From the microscopic to the astronomical, tell me about the feeding <laughs> habits of black holes, please. Yeah. So when people think about black holes, they think of like these stellar vacuum cleaners that suck up everything. But in reality, they only suck up stuff that are right next to it, like dust and gas from like a nearby star. And now a team of scientists led by astronomers in China has observed something that has only been theorized or seen in computational models, a black hole where that dust and gas is no longer getting sucked in. It's halted, and the gravity from the black hole is no longer winning. This is all detailed in a paper that was published last week in Science. Are there pictures? What does this actually look like? There isn't pictures of this black hole. But what you want to picture is, you know, the black hole is sucking that dust and gas from the nearby star towards its center, and that creates a disk around the black hole. So if you want to imagine something, Ari, it's imagining a bright donut in space with a black hole at the center. It's like everything everywhere all at once, the everything baby. <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly. And I mean, this is the closest we get to actually seeing a black hole in general, right? We're seeing the stuff it's eating getting sucked in. But in this case, all that dust and gas has stopped getting pulled in. Do scientists know why? Like, what's actually happening? So not all black hole disks are created equal. Like, some feed black holes slowly, some faster, some disks are thin, some are fatter. And that's important, according to Yale astrophysicist Priyamvada Natarajan, who didn't work on this paper. So geometry is destiny in many ways for the gas that's falling into a black hole. And that geometry she's talking about, or basically, you know, the shape of the disk, that determines how fast the material goes into the black hole. So the thicker the disk, the slower the dust and the gas fall in. And these thick disks can strengthen the magnetic fields present around black holes. That's what's happening here. Its disk is thick and now heavily magnetized. Now this magnetic pressure is strong enough to push against the black hole's gravitational pull and win. It countervails the black hole's gravity. Nothing flows. The flow stops. So basically, we have a massively constipated black hole. On that image, Aaron, <laughs> let's pivot to our third topic. Some good news about how farms can help tropical biodiversity. Um, how does that work? Because often we hear about rainforests being chopped down to make way for farms, which is a bad thing for biodiversity. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, Ari, of course, destroying tropical forests to create farmland does contribute a massive amount of carbon to the atmosphere, and it eliminates habitat for a lot of animals. But there is a bit of good news for some tropical birds, and they're kind of, I mean, 
the canary in the coal mine when it comes to biodiversity. Yeah, a new study out this week in the journal PNAS found that some birds that have been hurt by deforestation in Costa Rica, like the great green macaw, they've actually been increasing in numbers on what's known as diversified farms. Like farms that grow a lot of different crops, not just one. Exactly, exactly. In the tropics, there are a lot of these smaller family farms, and they plant just this big mix of crops, all interspersed with patches of forests and native plants and shrubs. It's very different from the monocrop farmlands that we mostly see here in the U.S. And researchers at Stanford who have been tracking tropical birds in Costa Rica have found some of these diversified farms are actually great habitat for forest birds, which sort of goes against the conventional wisdom about farmland and wildlife. Now, this increase in tropical birds that they're seeing on these diversified farms is not fully compensating for all the population losses that researchers are observing in the forests. But it is something. And, you know, the thought is that these diversified farms are providing a habitat that will act kind of as a bridge connecting shrinking forests that might otherwise end up fragmented. And that will help the birds hang on and some of them even thrive. Does this offer any lessons for farms in the U.S.? Yeah, I actually asked the lead author, Nicholas Hendershot, about that. And he said it's tricky to think about doing this in the U.S. just because of that large-scale agriculture that dominates here. You know, think your Midwestern cornfield. But Nicholas says we could think smaller, like people's gardens. And just trying to make that as friendly for wildlife as possible. Um, because I think what this work and other work shows is that wildlife are using everything and and they're not just in these protected forests. And what's really cool about that is that there was also a study out last week in scientific reports that found in Germany, at least, there's a lot of potential for gardeners to play a role in conservation by planting threatened plants in their yards or even something like a balcony pot. So anyone with a little space to plant native species can provide habitat for things like threatened birds and pollinators. That's Regina Barber and Aaron Scott of NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Regina, Aaron, thank you both. Thanks, Ari. Thanks for having us. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, protecting homes and neighborhoods from wildfires is a growing concern. It's also a business opportunity. There aren't enough specialized technicians to do this type of work. More on the fast-growing business of wildfire mitigation and preparedness. That's in about 10 minutes. Former Trump advisor Peter Navarro has been convicted of contempt of Congress after not complying with a subpoena from the House January 6th committee. More on this developing story coming up on 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, about 92 degrees right now. Should have some relief overnight tonight. About 72 degrees for a low, partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow, almost as hot as today has been, but down by a few degrees. Should stick to the upper 80s, partly sunny skies. As of now, it looks like Saturday should be sunny, but then clouds move in on Sunday. Upper 80s on Saturday, the low 80s on Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline. Embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at GoddardHouse.org. Ukraine is doing something that's never been done before. 
operating a nuclear power plant in the middle of a war. Unfortunately, the Zaporizhia situation has shown how vulnerable nuclear power plants can be. Why Ukrainian officials say the risk is necessary in a country still haunted by the meltdown in Chernobyl. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden's latest request for additional aid for Ukraine is facing new opposition in Congress as factions of Republicans argue over federal spending ahead of a possible October government shutdown. President Biden is asking Congress to approve $40 billion in additional spending, including $24 billion, to keep supporting Ukraine during its counteroffensive against Russian invaders. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Tony Blinken continued his tour of Ukraine today, citing the horrific human consequences the Russian aggression has created in the region. Blinken says despite that, the Ukrainian people are united. Ukrainians are coming together to get rid of the ordinance, to get rid of the mines, uh, and to rebuild, uh, to literally recover the land that was taken from them. Lincoln announced a new package of wartime assistance worth more than $1 billion yesterday to help Ukraine build momentum for its counteroffensive. North Korean hackers are reported to be spying on Russia. It's unknown if the matter will come up later this month when North Korean's leader plans to uh, make a visit to Moscow. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has this update. According to a new report from tech giant Microsoft, North Korean hackers are continuing a long-running practice of stealing cryptocurrency to fund the isolated regime. However, they're also focusing on espionage, including against Russia. That's despite North Korea's material support of Russia's war in Ukraine. The authors of the report from Microsoft's Digital Threat Analysis Center conclude this activity is likely for intelligence collection and may be an example of attackers taking advantage of an opportunity while Russia's distracted by war. Among the targets, Russia's government and defense industry, including an aerospace research facility and Russian diplomats. North Korean hackers are also zeroing in on maritime and shipbuilding industries. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Schools in Lowell will be closed again tomorrow for a second day. Interim School Superintendent Liam Skinner made the decision to shut down schools after students and teachers yesterday reported feeling lightheaded and ill. We don't have air conditioning. We've had classrooms in recent days where the temperature was in the 90s. Uh, the heat index in one case was up to uh, right boarding on 100. School systems release their students early in communities including Worcester, Reading, Framingham, and Melrose. Next June marks the 50th anniversary of the federal court order to desegregate Boston public schools. A committee of community activists is using the anniversary to reflect on that legacy and draw lessons moving forward. WBR's Emily Piper Valillo has more. Educators and local leaders announced the new three-year initiative, which aims to educate the public about the seminal 1974 ruling. The order resulted in the busing of thousands of black and white students to schools outside their neighborhoods. It sparked violent protests by white families. Co-chair Carolyn Crockett says this project is not only about remembering the past. So this initiative is really about giving us a chance to think not just about the history but and what happened, but lessons learned and what to do next. The first event will take place at the end of the month at Roxbury Community College, focusing on the historical context surrounding the court order. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper-Valillo. 
A Massachusetts state trooper who was critically injured last month in a crash in Utah is returning home to the Bay State today. Matthew McRae was hurt when the rideshare he was in was struck by another driver. Police arrested the other driver with operating under the influence. A GoFundMe page for McRae shows donors have raised more than twice the goal for the trooper's transport flights and his medical needs. Temperatures heading downward. 91 degrees right now was 93 earlier. Should fall back to the low 70s overnight tonight. And then tomorrow, look for sunshine, some fair weather clouds around. Temperatures making it up to the upper 80s tops over the weekend. Partly sunny on Saturday, still in the high 80s. Could have a late day shower. And then Sunday, the fun's over. Mostly cloudy skies, chance of showers around 82. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davies, David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Preparing homes and neighborhoods for wildfires is becoming more urgent as wildfires race across new and wider swaths of the country, fueled in part by climate change humans have caused. That's an opportunity for a business that's only burgeoning now and could become a massive industry, as NPR's Alina Selyuk reports. Three years ago, O.P. Almaraz stared at a menacing glow on the horizon. Now, this is called the Blue Ridge Fire. Fire burning from the freeways here. nearly 5,000 homes under mandatory evacuation. Almaraz at home in California, San Bernardino County, packed up his family and dogs to evacuate. The next morning, I woke up. The entire hotel lobby was jam-packed, chaos everywhere. I thought, holy smokes, everyone is wondering if their house is going to make it. And there's so much uncertainty and an opportunity. Almaraz had a company called Allied Restoration, crews that clean and renovate homes after disaster. Now his second company, Allied Disaster Defense, is all about preparing homes to face a wildfire, not just hoping and praying. He says this business in the past year grew almost 30%, and he doesn't have a ton of competitors. Not many, not many at all. There aren't enough specialized technicians to do this type of work. The industry around wildfire mitigation and preparedness is still nascent, relatively small, barely regulated, but growing fast. It's kind of the Wild West now of what's happening wildfire-wise. Seth Shallot runs the nonprofit Santa Clara County Fire Safety Council. He says awareness of the threat is spreading. Extreme fires are burning where they didn't used to, like Hawaii. Cities unfamiliar with smoke get shrouded in orange haze, like New York City this summer. Now everybody is concerned, and so there's a lot of folks jumping into the kind of home entrepreneurial market. Companies are pitching high-end air filters and sprinkler systems for those who can afford it. Architects and builders have begun to plan for wildfire risks. Venture capital has started to flow to wildfire-focused tech companies. For example, Dryad in Germany, which makes basically an outdoor smoke detector. This is about the size of a um, palm of the hand. 
CEO Karsten Brinkschulte holds up what looks like an oversized luggage tag. It's a solar-powered sensor that sits on a tree trunk and tries to smell a fire when it's very small. The biggest challenge for us was to distinguish the smell of a wildfire from that of a diesel truck driving by, for example. This takes artificial intelligence, which is starting to power a whole new subset of the industry. And for now, there's lots and lots of testing for the new tech and not much oversight. So technological leaps are one driver in the wildfire mitigation business. The other one hits closer to home. Most people, they contact us because the insurance is going up. That's Opie Almaraz again, the contractor in California, where home insurers are jacking up rates or leaving altogether. Some insurance companies give people a break if they invest in home hardening. These are long recommended techniques. Fire-resistant roofs, covered gutters, no plants or mulch within five feet of the house, vents that can stop embers from flying inside. Almaraz's crew offers to do it all or teach people to do it themselves. We almost can't keep up, but that's a good thing. Ex-firefighter April Schwartz now works for Almaraz. Today, she's doing something beyond conventional home hardening. Spraying fire retardant in a picturesque neighborhood northeast of Los Angeles. It's similar to what the firefighters might drop from the sky. The street is dotted with extremely flammable palm trees. It backs into a lush forest cascading off the San Gabriel Mountains, uncomfortably close to where a wildfire raged in 2020. So embers like to land in those little pockets. That's why we spray the base of the tree. Almaraz is now even training other contractors to do comprehensive wildfire home prep, eyeing a franchise to other Western states by next year. Wildfires as a threat are reaching new places and as big business, only heating up. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. NPR's Liz Baker contributed to this report. More than two years after 98 people died in the collapse of a Florida condominium tower, federal investigators today released new details about the cause of the collapse. They're focusing on construction flaws on the building's pool deck. In Surfside, NPR's Greg Allen reports family members of those who died are impatient with the investigation and unhappy about plans for a new building on the site. Structural engineers with the National Institute of Standards and Technology say it's one of the most complex investigations ever undertaken. It began days after the 2021 collapse of the Champlain Towers South Building in Surfside. In a progress report, one of the team's leaders, Glenn Bell, said the investigation continues to focus on the condo tower's pool deck. Investigators have previously said they found significant design and construction problems that left the deck weaker than required by building codes. Bell said the team now has also found problems in how the concrete columns that supported the building were constructed. These additional construction deviations further reduce the strength of the pool deck slab to column connections from the already compromised conditions that I reported in June. Investigators continue to point to problems with the pool deck as their, quote, leading failure hypothesis, the reason why the 40-year-old 12-story building collapsed with little warning in a matter of seconds. The NIST team says it's still investigating 24 other possible failure hypotheses, although it plans to begin narrowing down the field soon. 
NIST has already spent more than $20 million on the investigation. The team has moved tons of concrete columns, flooring, and other rubble to a warehouse where it's undergone extensive testing. It's a painstaking, labor-intensive operation. Investigators made a plea to former residents and members of the public to come forward with any photos or video they may have of the building's collapse. At the meeting, Bell showed stills of a video recovered from a motion-activated camera that has provided investigators with intriguing information of the final moments as the building collapsed. Investigation head Judith Mitrani-Reiser says the team has recovered 24 computer hard drives that may hold videos and is actively working to rebuild seven of them. If even one of those seven has short amount of footage, that would be a huge impact to our investigation. One of those attending the NIST meeting in Maryland today was Martin Langesfeld. His sister Nicole and his brother-in-law Louis Sadovnik died in the collapse. He flew to the meeting from Florida to express his impatience with the slow pace of the investigation. How can we even contemplate having a new developer build on this land when we have not yet come close to understanding why it collapsed in the first place, taking 98 lives within? In Surfside, city officials recently approved the developer's plans for a new 12-story condominium to be built on the site of the collapse. Family members of those who died have objected, in part because it would place a memorial to their loved ones next to a loading dock. Langesfeld also believes the federal government should intervene and prevent any work from beginning on the site until the NIST investigation is complete, which is not expected until 2025. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, Adina Sussman's latest cookbook features recipes that are special to her. Shabbat was this focal point of my family's quality time, social life, food life. And, you know, once we lit candles on Friday, time really did stop. More on those customs and how to prepare one of her favorite dishes tomorrow on Morning Edition. You can listen on the radio online or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There's heated debate in Australia over what's known as the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. A referendum will be held next month on whether First Nations people should be part of the consultation process for government policy. But as reporter Scott Maiman reports from Australia's capital city, Canberra, the simple yes or no question has divided opinion. Under the current system, Australia's government policies are conceived, considered, approved and implemented by politicians through sittings of federal parliament in Canberra. But now there's a question on changing Australia's constitution to include First Nations people as part of planning considerations involving future policies. It's a vote branded as VOICE, stands for Voice for Indigenous Australians. It's about changing our founding document to recognise the privilege that we have of sharing this continent with the oldest continuous culture on earth. Australia's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. It's about also having an advisory body, a voice, so we can listen to Indigenous people about matters that affect them so that we can get better results. The Prime Minister's plan was to involve the country's Indigenous people, around 4% of the total population of 26 million, in the policy-making process. To succeed, it needs to go to the public by referendum. 
October 14 is the date Australians will go to the polls and vote either yes or no. At first, it appears to be a simple question, but the matter has sparked heated debate here, with a recent opinion poll showing only about 38% of Australians support the referendum. Yes, campaigners, including the Prime Minister, say the referendum is a step towards reconciliation. Those against it, or no campaigners, say there's not enough information about the plan. They also say it's not clear what the plan involves. In a recent TV interview, independent senator from Tasmania, Jackie Lambie, explained how the campaign has become confusing. When we've sold the word recognition for years and years and years, mm. um, and then you come in with a brand new word voice, it's all become just one big puddle. Lambie has some powerful backing, including those from Aboriginal society. Jacinta Price, a Northern Territory politician, says the referendum does not fix the fundamental issues facing First Nations people. This is not how you solve problems for Indigenous Australians. The Prime Minister has failed to actually provide any evidence whatsoever that demonstrates how it will improve the lives of Indigenous Australians. It's an argument that resonates with some yes voters too. Kate Galloway is an academic lawyer from Griffith University in Queensland. She says she supports greater recognition of the country's Indigenous population. But a successful referendum does not necessarily mean First Nations people's recommendations in Parliament will be followed through. It gives the power to First Nations people to make representations to Parliament and executive government but there's no guarantee that they will be listened to. So, will changing the Constitution and the Yes campaign be fair and equitable for all Australians? It's a question that's currently without an answer, until after the referendum is held on October 14. One thing's for sure, the government wants the referendum to return a Yes vote. And like all big political campaigns, organisers have brought in a popular Australian singer, using a popular Australian song to promote the campaign and ensure the yes vote is just as popular. For NPR News, I'm Scott Maiman in Canberra, Australia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, four states are strengthening rules that require home sellers and landlords to disclose information about whether a home has flooded in the past or is likely to flood in the future. That story still to come. Red Sox play it cool tonight as they rest up for a seven-game homestand that starts with a weekend series with Baltimore. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. It is 92 degrees now in the Boston area. Should fall to about 72 overnight tonight. For tomorrow, reaching the upper 80s, partly sunny skies tomorrow. And then for Saturday, look for some sunshine, some clouds around, maybe showers later in the day. Highs in the upper 80s, then the low 80s on Sunday with clouds moving in for the day. It's 549. WVR supporters include Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And Greener U, a design-build climate action firm, helping organizations meet their energy, carbon, and climate goals. Learn more at GreenerU.com. 
Neither side militarily is making much ground, and so it's hard to see militarily the conflict ending soon. That's one analyst's current view of the Ukraine war. But to historians, it also sounds a lot like the Korean War. Could the Korean armistice agreement signed 70 years ago serve as a model for Russia and Ukraine now? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Along with the humidity, there was excitement in the air today as more than 40,000 students returned to Boston Public Schools. And with temperatures about 90 degrees this morning, they were likely happy to find that most of the schools are now air-conditioned. As WBR's Max Larkin reports, cooler buildings are just one of many challenges Boston officials are pushing for. Aside from the heat emergency, Boston's first day of school this year felt a bit more chill. During a morning press conference outside the Mildred Avenue School, Mayor Michelle Wu reflected on last fall's more hectic first day. Superintendent Skipper had not started yet. We were in the middle of the Orange Line shutdown. We were short in terms of many of the kind of key areas that really make schools tick. Over the past year, Superintendent Mary Skipper and her team have been hard at work. Along with adding air conditioning to all but 14 of its aging buildings, BPS also settled 18 union contracts. And earlier this summer, leaders introduced a proposal to move the John D. O'Brien School from Roxbury to a renovated site in West Roxbury. In a sea of first-day hugs and high-fives outside the O'Brien, that change was met with lingering skepticism from the school's current staff students. Like Sarah Blanco, she already gets up at 5 a.m. to reach the O'Brien from her home in East Boston and could face an even longer commute to the new location. Like, I already wake up early and having to wake up earlier, like, is kind of hard for me because I won't be getting enough sleep. BPS also stepped up hiring, focusing on transportation. The district recruited 200 extra bus drivers and additional bus monitors, trying to meet a state-imposed standard of 95% on-time arrivals. On the first day, 84% of district buses arrived within 15 minutes of their scheduled time, up from 77% last year. But that still left room for some disappointment. Fitzgerald Allen of Mattapan was still standing on the corner with his grandson Harley 30 minutes after the fourth graders' planned pickup time. Allen laughed. He said he wasn't even surprised by the no-show. No, same as last year. I'm a veteran at it now. <laughs> Allen appreciates that BPS is trying to solve a long-time problem. But he's also a veteran truck driver, and he wishes the district would adopt what he calls his old-school mentality. The extra effort is not there anymore. You know, we quick to just do the quick thing and then fix it after the fact. I came from do it right the first time and you don't have to fix it. That's the way I was raised. So there are big changes underway across the state's largest school district. But comprehensive fixes to many of BPS's longtime problems won't come overnight, or even over a single busy summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. This year marks the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. And in Boston, rap and hip-hop artists are pushing the genre forward. One of them is Key, a rapper from Dorchester. 
I'm the life of the party. Got the bottles on deck, we sipping on Bacardi. All the shorties in the back of the back, already shaking ass, got the going gnarly. The 23-year-old released her first project two years ago. She got noticed quickly. She won Best New Artist at last year's Boston Music Awards. For our series on rising local musicians, Sound On, WBUR arts reporter Ariel Gray tells us why she thinks Key is one to check out. If there's one thing rapper Key knows how to do, it's play with her voice. She can go from a very 1990s-inspired Spitfire sound like her song Berserk. How I come in just so effortless. I got you hooked, I know you wonder how I jig and finesse. The truth is everything I do, I never do to impress. Somehow I to a gritty, metal-driven rage, like on the track Dump-ish. It's going up. Hands up to the sky, cause you know it's lost. See the smoke inside the club. There's no lack of swears and other expletives in Key's music. Her in-your-face, combative lyrical style is unapologetic, often drawing from her experiences as a Black woman in the music industry. And though Key's delivery and tone change on nearly every one of her albums and singles, she still has a recognizable sound. So she's quickly developed a following here in Boston in the two years since her first EP, Baby Steps, came out. Here's a track from that. When it comes to a degree and making future plans, I'll be cooking in the kitchen like my mama making yams. I can see it on your face, you may be wonder who I am. Hello, my name is Key, today I'm going on a ring. You can hear the wit and playfulness peeking through in the lyrics, but sonically, the track isn't as adventurous as her later music. I think my favorite thing about the project is the cover. It's a photo of Key as a toddler. She's wearing a pair of headphones, a big smile on her face, and she's surrounded by studio equipment that belonged to her father. My dad was always making beats at home. He would have friends over and they would come and record. You know, through his appreciation of music, I found my appreciation of music, but in a different way at first as a kid. Key draws from many different inspirations, including hip-hop and the subgenres trap and rage music. Rage is fairly new and features lots of drums and bass and abrasive synths. One of Key's big influences is rapper Rico Nasty. Rico is known for her aggressive delivery in her music. But beyond that, what really inspired Key was Rico's differences from other female rappers, like her outlandish personal style and unconventional visuals. Rico Nasty's fame proved to Key that she could be unique and still make it. As a young Black woman, there's this stigma behind what a woman in general in music should sound like or do her flow, her sound, and just how she expresses herself visually kind of kick-started my perspective on how to be out of the box. That out-of-the-box thinking really solidifies itself on Key's third project, which is called Child's Play. The name is a reference to the Chucky Horror movies that started coming out in the late 80s. Key uses a lot of voice shifting and some violent imagery on the album. She says she wants listeners to feel like they're immersed in a horror film. Key 
He says the actual emotion of rage and life sometimes feeling chaotic are experiences she mines for further insight into who she is as an artist. She says she's still doing a lot of experimenting and she hopes fans will sit tight as she evolves. I feel like most people are ignorant to the fact that I'm still very much new to this, so I'm still figuring out what my sound is, my creative process, my branding. Sometimes I overthink a lot and I doubt myself, or this doesn't sound good, but when I just allow myself to just be free and be me, I find peace in that. I find like serenity. I'm like Freddy, pull up with the switchblade. If I'm coming, got you looking at me, key like which way? Oh, let's get it. I'm a- I'm about to switch lanes. Yeah. I'm a switch there's no box that can define Key's music, and there's no genre that she fits neatly into. But freedom is front and center in all of her work, and it will continue to be as she grows as an artist. You can find photos and Arielle Gray's full profile of Key at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, the Portakalos family is headed to Greece. From director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast, only in theaters September 8th. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. Start your day with 90.9 WBUR tomorrow. There are new details about a hate group that is targeting hotels for Massachusetts families with no homes. That includes a growing number of immigrant families. Listen again tomorrow morning or on the WBUR app. Red Sox get to take the night off before they host the Orioles tomorrow night at Fenway Park. The Yankees follow. It's 5.59. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mexico is on course to make history by electing its first female head of state in next year's elections, likely shattering a glass ceiling in a notoriously patriarchal society. Today is Thursday, September 7th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, many homeowners get no information about whether their property has flooded in the past or whether it's likely to flood in the future. Missouri, Florida, and Georgia, all highly flood-prone states with really no mandatory 
disclosure requirements. Other states, however, are taking steps to ensure transparency. A new coalition of donors says one out of every five Americans lives in a news desert with little or no reliable local news. And thousands of items belonging to Queen's frontman Freddie Mercury are going up for auction, including his baby grand. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Former Trump advisor Peter Navarro has been convicted of contempt of Congress. As NPR's Windsor Johnston reports, Navarro refused to comply with a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The jury in the case found Peter Navarro guilty on two contempt of Congress charges for defying the subpoena. Speaking outside of the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., Navarro once again argued that former President Donald Trump asserted executive privilege to block him from appearing before the committee. Even as the Department of Justice was bringing this case, They had a policy for more than 50 years that says people like me, senior White House advisors, cannot be compelled to testify before Congress. Navarro is the second former Trump aide to be convicted for defying a congressional subpoena. Steve Bannon was found guilty last year, also on two contempt counts. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. In Ohio, the state's top court has dismissed a legal challenge to Ohio's congressional election map. As NPR's Hansi Luang explains, it means that next year's elections in the state will continue to use a map the state court found violates Ohio's state constitution by favoring Republican candidates over Democrats. Challengers of Ohio's congressional map asked the state's top court to dismiss their case to avoid the substantial costs and uncertainty for voters that would come with continuing this legal challenge. It's the latest twist in a drawn-out redistricting process. Republican state lawmakers refused to follow the Ohio Supreme Court's order to draw a new congressional map that would replace the one the court found violates Ohio's constitution by unduly favoring the Republican Party. And the Ohio Republicans appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court in an effort that further delayed this process. Even with this case now dismissed, Ohio's constitution still calls for a new congressional map after next year's elections. Hansi Luang. NPR News. The group that operates the Texas Power Grid is again asking people in the state to conserve electricity. As Mose Bouchelle reports from member station KUT in Austin, the request comes after ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, had to take emergency measures to stabilize the grid yesterday. Continued extreme heat in Texas is driving energy demand to new levels that ERCOT says it may have trouble meeting this evening. On Wednesday, high demand and a rapid drop in electricity reserves prompted the grid operator to declare an energy emergency alert that opened the possibility of rolling blackouts. After two hours, the grid ended up returning to normal without service interruptions. But with continued heat expected well into the evening, ERCOT says another emergency declaration is possible here tonight. For NPR News, I'm Mose Bouchelle in Austin. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 57 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Two new reports blame the MBTA's track department for a series of problems that have plagued the transit system. The reports found track workers missed numerous problems because they didn't have enough experience or training to do their job properly. At a news conference today, MBTA General Manager Philip Eng talked about what it will take to fix the problems. Expanding maintenance staffing and implementing more rigorous training standards. Upgrading antiquated processes and documentation practices to meet modern industry practices and standards. Improving quality control and oversight of critical safety 
procedures. The MBTA implemented more than 100 speed restrictions system-wide earlier this year. As of today, restrictions remain in place on more than a quarter of the T's tracks. Beacon Hill lawmakers today were told members of the National Guard will be deployed within days to help deal with the influx of migrants and the strain the numbers are creating on the state's emergency shelter system. Troops will help manage the needs of migrants. The state is placed in hotels. As of now, the hotels are not staffed with workers who can help the migrants with food, transportation, or medical needs. A poll out today shows that New England residents are increasingly concerned about the health of the ocean. WBR's Paula Mara reports they're worried about plastic, pollution, and climate change. The poll found that more respondents are concerned about threats to the ocean health, including acidification and overfishing, compared to past polls. Priscilla Brooks is with the Conservation Law Foundation. The advocacy group surveyed 3,500 people in all New England states. The respondents view a healthy ocean as very important to their quality of life, to the economy and to coastal communities and to the region's ability to deal with climate change. She says people also expressed strong support for establishing protected areas in the ocean for endangered species. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. Still bright out there, still hot, 90 degrees now in the Boston area. Should be down around 72 overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow and Saturday, partly sunny, should be in the upper 80s. Sunday, clouds on the march should be gray and cooler, maybe moist as well, with temperatures about 82 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 6.06. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Mexico is marking a moment in history. Unless there is a seismic upset in the ensuing months, the country appears all but certain to be on course to elect its first female head of state in next year's elections. This comes after late yesterday, the governing Morena party selected the former mayor of Mexico City, Claudia Sheinbaum, to be its candidate. She will face businesswoman and Senator Xochitl Galvez, who was selected last week as the main opposition coalition's candidate. NPR's Ada Peralta is in Mexico City. Hi there. Hey, Ari. How significant is this moment in Mexican politics? Was it a surprise? It is big, and it was a surprise because um, it's likely to mark the shattering of a glass ceiling in what is a notoriously patriarchal society. But it's also not surprising because it's taken hard and long work on the part of women in Mexico. Uh, We can go back to 1953 when women gained the right to vote, but I think we should go back to the late 90s uh, when Mexico started imagining what a multi-party democracy would look like. And women back there, feminists back there, uh, pushed the view that democracy could only exist if an equal participation of women was guaranteed. And they made sure that those were not just words. Uh, Slowly, Mexico instituted quotas in government positions, and in 2019, Mexico passed a constitutional amendment guaranteeing parity in every aspect of government. So today, Mexico's Congress is 50% women. The president's cabinet is balanced. The Supreme Court president is a woman. So is the central bank's governor. And 
Not that this is a competition, uh, but we should note that when it comes to gender equality, Mexico is far ahead of the United States. The Interparliamentary Union, which keeps tabs on women lawmakers, ranks Mexico fourth in the world when it comes to parity. It ranks the United States 71st. Only about 28% of American lawmakers are women. Hmm. So tell us about these two women, one of whom is likely to be Mexico's next leader. So who they are is actually the surprising bit. Uh, both of these women are unlikely protagonists in Mexican politics. Uh, Shanebaum is an environmental engineer, and Galvez is a computer uh, engineer. Both of them were brought out of civilian life uh, by presidents. Galvez was appointed to deal uh, with indigenous issues by former President Vicente Fox, and Shanebaum dealt with environmental issues when current President Andrés Manuel López Obrador was the mayor of Mexico City. Galvez also identifies as indigenous, and she speaks the Nyanyu language, and Shanebaum is Jewish. She was the first Jewish and woman mayor of Mexico City, and barring, as you mentioned, some miraculous third-party win, either Claudia Shanebaum or Xochitl Galvez will be elected Mexico's first woman president next summer. And how are people in Mexico reacting to that fact? I think... People on the streets appreciate the history. Let me play you a little bit of tape from Maria Luis Hernandez, who is a 65-year-old secretary. Creo que esta es una gran oportunidad para todo México porque este ya llegó el tiempo de las mujeres. Aunque sé que somos un país machista y corrupto, esta mujer va a triunfar mucho. And she's saying this is a great opportunity for Mexico because the time for women has arrived. I know she says that we're a machista and corrupt country, but this woman will triumph. And I think that sentiment is widespread here. Mexicans are yearning for a different country. They want justice. They want transparency. They want equality. And people here feel like men haven't been able to deliver. So maybe women will. It also tells you that whoever takes power, the expectations are going to be out of this world. Finally, Ada, let me ask you about a different story that relates mm-hmm. to gender rights in Mexico. The Supreme Court ruled to decriminalize abortion across the country. What did the judgment say? Well, the Supreme Court uh, threw out all federal criminal penalties for abortions, and that means that federal health facilities and federal health insurance will have to provide abortions. Abortion rights groups are calling the decision historic. Uh, It will open up access to abortions to millions of Mexicans, but this is not full legalization. Some 20 Mexican states still criminalize abortion, and those laws still stand, but it's clear uh, that abortion rights advocates will will, will, will start trying to change those state laws. Laws. NPR's Ada Peralta in on history being made in Mexico City. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ari. The NFL's new season kicks off tonight, but football fans who are Charter Spectrum Cable TV subscribers won't be able to get their football fix on ESPN. That is thanks to a dispute with Disney that saw more than two dozen Disney-owned channels yanked from the service, including the one that calls itself the worldwide leader in sports. Here to explain how this carriage dispute could actually threaten the future of cable TV is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hey there. Hi. So, Eric, can you start by explaining this disagreement between Disney and Charter Spectrum? And I mean, how did we get to the point where nearly 15 million subscribers lost access to Disney's channels? Well, I'll try. (laughs) Basically, cable systems pay media companies like Disney to carry their channels. 
And in negotiating a new deal, Disney asked for higher fees, even though cord cutting means there's fewer subscribers. Now, Charter agreed, but they insisted that their subscribers get something else, free access to streaming versions of Disney channels. And that has been proven to be a deal breaker. Uh, Disney's channels left Charter Spectrum Systems just as the football season was about to start and the U.S. Open was underway. And that surprised a lot of sports fans who suddenly couldn't see events. In fact, there's a woman in Tampa, Florida, who's leading a proposed class action lawsuit against Charter claiming breach of contract. Now, Charter CEO Chris Winfrey uh, spoke at a conference today. He implied the company would be willing to restructure its offerings without costly sports programming like ESPN if this deal doesn't work out. Huh, okay. I mean, but still, disputes between media companies that bring brief blackouts, that's not unheard of. So why is this one such a big deal? Why might it actually threaten the future of the cable TV industry? Well, I think this is another example of how streaming services are disrupting and disintegrating TV earnings. In cable TV, popular channels like ESPN entice customers to sign up for systems that include a lot of other channels they might not watch. But as companies like Disney shift more of their top shelf programs to streaming, there's less incentive to buy that cable bundle. Now, Disney exec executives have talked about offering more ESPN content through streaming. Executives at another company, Warner Brothers Discovery, have talked about offering more news from CNN and live sports coverage on its max streaming service, and that would put on streaming two of the biggest selling points for cable TV, live sports and live, new, live news reporting. And this is about precedent. I mean, whatever agreement these companies come up with, it's likely going to be duplicated elsewhere. Right. Okay. Let's talk numbers. Can companies like Disney actually make more money by putting their channels on streaming? Well, that's the toughest question. I mean, right now on cable systems, Disney gets something like $9 per subscriber, according to the Los Angeles Times, whether or not those subscribers actually watch ESPN. Now, on streaming, Disney only gets paid for the people who sign up for the app, and they probably can't charge those subscribers enough to fully make up for the lost cable revenue. Consumers are cutting the cord. They're dropping cable subscriptions for streaming anyway. So companies like Disney are forced into beefing up these streaming platforms where they might make less money, which degrades the cable systems where they used to make a lot of money. It is so it's such a mess. All right. Last question. And it's a big one, Eric. How is this all going to end? Do you think these two sides are going to be able to cut a deal? Well, Charter CEO Winfrey says he wants this resolved one way or another quickly, but I have not seen this level of acrimony in a long time. I mean, Disney released a statement saying, quote, Charter, Charter decided to abandon their consumers mm. today and suggested people buy who, their Hulu plus live TV streaming package. Yeah. Spectrum is funneling people to Fubo TV where they can get a 25 to 30 percent discount. This could spark a trend that could reach across the entire industry. Right. And both companies seem willing to walk away from a business model, which made them both lots of money. It's a mess. We'll see what happens. NPR TV critic Eric Daggins, thanks. Thank you. Four coastal states are taking steps to ensure potential home buyers understand flood risks when they decide where to live. That's because flooding is the most widespread disaster in the U.S. Virtually every county in the country has had a flood at some point in the last three decades. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports on the new regulations. North Carolina, South Carolina, New York, and New Jersey are joining the ranks of states with strong flood disclosure requirements. That means when you're thinking about buying a house, you'll get information about whether the house has flooded in the past and whether it's likely to flood in the future. 
Joel Scada is a senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council. He says the new rules mirror those in other flood-prone states. States like Texas and Louisiana have very strong disclosure laws when it comes to flood risk. Here's how it works. After you make an offer to buy a house, the seller fills out a disclosure form. You receive a piece of paper that would tell you, you know, how old the roof is, um, the type of plumbing and like sewer system hookups, and it would also have information there about flooding. Information like whether the seller is aware of any past flood damage to the home, whether the home is in an official flood zone, and whether the home is required to carry flood insurance. That way, potential buyers can walk away if they want to. The goal is to help home buyers avoid living in harm's way and avoid expensive damage down the line. Buying a home is often a family's biggest financial commitment. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a home. And so it's really important that we know whether or not it's flood prone because flooding is extremely costly. Even a small amount of water can do tens of thousands of dollars of damage because the water soaks into furniture, flooring, and drywall. If it's not fixed quickly, dangerous mold can grow. And flood insurance to help cover repairs is increasingly expensive. Climate change is partly to blame. Rising seas, more intense hurricanes, and heavier rainstorms are all driving more flood risk across the U.S. And as flooding gets worse, other states are also moving to strengthen their laws. Florida and Vermont are currently considering new flood disclosure rules. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Business news starts at 6.30. Coming up tonight, trust in dating apps is deteriorating, and some singles are ditching them for more old-school methods of dating. These are the people that have been dating online since college. So all of these people coming to us at 27, 28 have been dating online using apps for about a decade already, and they're sick of them. What's going on with the dating industry? Coming up on Marketplace, again, it starts at 6.30. The time now is 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Arts. Presenting open studios this Saturday and Sunday, see and shop the creativity that is Cambridge. CambridgeArtsCouncil.org. Ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow picked up nearly two-tenths of a percent. S&P was on the downside. It lost about three-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq lost even more ground, down nearly a full percent. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Volante Farms in Needham, with daily lunch specials highlighting homegrown produce, full-service deli and cafe with sandwiches and salads, hours at volantefarms.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. The Boston area did not set a record high temperature today. The high was 93 degrees. Boston's record temperature for the state was 102 degrees set in 1881. Worcester tied its record of 90. In Providence, it hit 90 degrees today. That's not a record, but it is the first time this year that Providence has hit 90 degrees. 
Temperatures are heading downward overnight tonight. Should reach about 72 degrees, partly cloudy skies. Then for tomorrow, should make it to the upper 80s. Sunshine, some fair weather clouds around. Then for the weekend, partly sunny on Saturday, still in the high 80s. Could have a late day shower. Then Sunday, mostly cloudy skies. Chance of showers up around 82 degrees. This is WBUR at 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. A quarter of American newspapers have gone out of business since 2005. To stem that tide, a coalition of major philanthropies is stepping forward today with a new initiative. They are pledging at least a half billion dollars over the next five years to shore up local journalism. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick is covering the story, joins us now. Hi, David. Hey, Juana. So, David, tell us who's behind this initiative. So it's a kind of murderer's row of uh, major funders, MacArthur, the Knight Foundation, Carnegie, and many others, many of which are, especially MacArthur, major financial supporters of NPR, I should say. As for the why of what's going on, let's hear what John Palfrey has to say. He's the president of the MacArthur Foundation. There is a crisis in local news. And the fact that so many newspapers are going out of business, that there are so many news deserts across America that it poses such a threat to our democracy that we had to do something at scale to be helpful. These groups are, are lifting up how much they're giving. It's not as though the money to NPR, PBS, and other outfits from MacArthur is going away. But what happens in places where journalism fails, where there are what they call these news deserts, is that you know studies indicate that uh, corruption in corporate life goes up, corruption in politics goes up, and voter engagement goes down even as misinformation fills the vacuum. And they have a fear about what happens to democracy and society beyond a, really what happens to the news industry itself. Okay, at this point, do we have a sense of what types of news operations are going to be getting this funding? Well, so they say that they're going to look to sustain, you know, impressive current uh, news outlets as well as uh, new ventures. I think that there's going to really be an emphasis on not-for-profit. If you look at what happened, you know, they haven't awarded any grants yet. But if you look at what happened, for example, uh, in Chicago, the MacArthur Foundation helped uh, Chicago public media take over the Chicago Sun-Times, you know, a proud but but declining newspaper there to keep it in business and in print. They're not going to go to try to fund these huge, uh, you know, newspapers owned by these enormous local newspaper conglomerates that are often owned by these uh, hedge funds or investment funds such as Gannett. Uh, uh, you know, a, a huge number of newspapers are owned by Alden Global Capital. He, John Palfrey and others involved in this venture see that as part of the problem, not places they want to prop up. So I think they're they're looking to uh, look for new models, not simply say, well, this is a newspaper and therefore we have to support it. What are those places that are clearly dedicating themselves to uh, informing the public uh, in a way that helps uh, the benefit society? Right. I mean, David, you and I have been in this business long enough to know that this is not the first time we've heard about a big financial effort that is promising to save local newsrooms and to reinvigorate that part of our industry. How have we seen that play out in the past? 
Well, sure. The Knight Foundation itself on its own previously did uh, 300 million. You've seen nine figure ventures from Google and Meta, which we think of as Facebook. In the latter two cases, those digital giants have been blasted for essentially siphoning off most of the online advertising from uh, news, the news industry. And a lot of that was seen as response to that criticism. That said, they've sponsored a lot of interesting ventures, some of which sustain to this day, but a lot of which uh, have ebbed. And so the question is, what comes next? That's the question indeed. So how is this latest effort from MacArthur and the others going to be different? They see this as seed money, but you're hearing the major officials involved say from these philanthropies say they think this problem is so vast, this can't be enough. They want it to grow to a billion dollars. They want to get some of that money from social media platforms. And also they think there has to be a shift in public policy and in the public itself, that it needs to be willing to pay, like, for example, so many members do to public radio stations voluntarily to keep that information and news coming. We have been talking with NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. David, thank you. You bet. The piano behind one of the most famous songs in the world has a new owner. The Yamaha Baby Grand that Freddie Mercury used to compose Bohemian Rhapsody and other Queen hits sold for more than $2 million at auction yesterday. The sale of more than 1,400 lots from Mercury's personal collection is taking place over several auctions this month. Bidders from all over the world have already raised paddles in person, online, and over the phone. Gabriel Heaton is a director at Sotheby's in London, which is overseeing the sale, and he says the response has been overwhelming. This has been unprecedented in so many ways. I mean, just the sheer number of people, the extremely warm and deeply emotional response. He was particularly excited by artifacts showing Mercury's writing process, including a 15-page manuscript for Bohemian Rhapsody's lyrics that went for around $1.7 million. You can see the song go from these kind of scribbled notes to the near-finished song, and then to see even the last minute, the little changes that he made that just perfected the song. It's, yeah, it's really, really wonderful, actually. Other bits of history on the auction block included drafts of lyrics from Somebody to Love, Don't Stop Me Now, and Killer Queen. And then there are many of Mercury's memorable looks. A silver snake bracelet that Mercury wore in the Bohemian Rhapsody music video went for 100 times its asking price. And the red crown and cloak he wore to close out each show of Queen's last tour in 1986 went for over $800,000. You've been a really special audience. Thank you very much. Good night, sweet dreams. We love you. Gabriel Heaton at Sotheby's says it's been an especially emotional auction. I had to literally put my arms around a successful bidder today because they were so overwhelmed at having won a particular lot. I've been here nearly 20 years. I've never had to do that before. But some fans are sad to see Mercury's intimate possessions auctioned off. Queen guitarist Brian May is with them. He wrote on Instagram ahead of the sale that he couldn't look at his friend's belongings being, quote, knocked down to the highest bidder and dispersed forever. Heaton understands that take, too. There's always a bittersweet edge to any parting, of course, but these objects are not disappearing. They're entering the custody of new people. The love and the passion that these buyers feel for these objects is is extraordinary. And those fans who do manage to snag a piece of Freddie Mercury, be it his graffiti-covered garden door, his Tiffany mustache comb, or even a pair of his chopsticks, truly must feel like... You gonna say it, Juana? I guess I have to. They must feel like champions. 
Thank you for listening to Queen and to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The first round of checks was distributed today from the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund. The fund was created by the United Way to help farmers affected by flooding this summer. Governor Maura Healy made the announcement at the Hollis Hills Farm in Fitchburg. Today, uh, we are able to announce that the fund has raised, to date, over $3 million. Over $3 million. We are... Uh, six, over 650 different contributors, uh, ranging in donation sizes from $5 to a $1 million. Healy says the first uh, round of $2 million in relief checks are going to 214 farms in central and western Massachusetts. Boston Holiday, or Boston Pops, that is, are announcing their schedule for the 50th anniversary of the Holiday Pops. In December, there will be 39 performances, including a sensory-friendly concert at Symphony Hall. Dennis Alves is the director of the artistic planning at the Pops. He says he looks forward to watching as many shows as he can get in. Watching people have fun, you know, drinking some eggnog and, and uh, singing along to all the songs. That's what I look forward to every year. It's, uh, it really, really puts you into the holiday spirit. Holiday Pops concerts will also be held in Worcester, Lowell, Providence, and in Manchester, New Hampshire. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Look for temperatures around 72 degrees. For tomorrow and, in fact, for Saturday, partly sunny. Highs may stick to the upper 80s. Sunday clouds move in, should be gray and cooler and maybe damp for a change with highs about 82 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com.